You are listening to the Change Management Review Podcast, where we bring you the best tactics, strategies, and actionable insights for change through our powerful interviews with change management practitioners and leaders. And now here's your host, Brian Gorman. Welcome to this edition of the Change Management Review Podcast. Our guest today is Michael Leckie. Michael has spent his career helping people to make sense of the world around them. He knows that it is the stories we share that guide us in discovering what we might become and living up to all we can be. He has been sharing the stories of change and transformation for over 20 years in all parts of the world. In his work with Gartner's executive programs, he led the work to reshape what the idea of help truly meant to Gartner's CXO clients and to ensure that his teams worked with their clients to find the right problems, not just work on solutions to the problems presented. In addition to (laughs) his time at Gartner, Michael has held global roles for industry-leading companies in both people-centered roles and general management. Michael is founding partner of Silverback Partners, LLC and is the author of The Heart of Transformation, Build the Human Capabilities that Change Organizations for Good. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Michael, I told you before we started recording, and I want to repeat it to have it on the record, I think this is one of the most valuable books that I have ever read around change. I want to start off with one of what may be... uh, considered controversial by some, you write, organizations don't exist. (laughs) I do. Um, I do. Well, you know, it's funny when I've been so frustrated with organization change and, and the thing about, you know, the mistakes we make in, in change, change management, et cetera, I've, I've made them all. So um, I understand it, but you know, organizations don't exist. They're a mental construct we use to, you know, put a frame around groups of people, you know, small to enormous that are working, you know, towards some shared goal. But we almost fetishize the organization and allows us to ignore the people and think if we just move boxes around on pages and if we redefine some things and, you know, if we stick with just here, here's, here's roles and those roles, the people are really fungible we find that we end up where we are, which is we really can't manage or change things very well. I mean, nobody, nobody sits down and gives an organization feedback on its performance. Nobody sits down and coaches an organization. Nobody, you know, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's machines sometimes and people using them, but, you know, I think we've allowed that. And I think in, in our discipline as well, we've allowed that to get in the way sometimes. And um, we focus on processes and tools and forget that people in interactions are kind of what really matter. You write, in the end, organizational structures are simply the rules or restrictions we put on who talks to whom about what. Mm. This is important because it means the power to change lies not in structure, but in dialogue. I often, in fact, even today, um, Terry Moulton and I were teaching our coaching skills for change practitioners. And uh, one of the areas we focused on was conversational intelligence. Mm-hmm. And we use the work of Judith Glasser, who is known for her research on the neuroscience of conversation. And I want to quote her because I think she's saying 
very much what you said. To get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of the culture, which depends on the quality of the relationships, which depends on the quality of conversations. Mm. Everything happens through conversation. What do you see as the most important changes in our approach to transformation to ensure that that level of dialogue that you and Judith are talking about happens? Yeah, what a great question. Um, and I guess maybe the the answer is in my uh, uh, my praise for your great question. I, I think I think a lot of it lies in great questions. Um, when I, I work with organizations now, uh, in the past I did a lot of other things, but I have a couple of organizations I'm working with right at the moment, and I think are interesting examples because they they um, they go one is less than 100 people, private equity backed startup. The other is you know north of half a million people fortune 20 company in the US. And we're doing the exact same thing. What we are doing is we are introducing a new conversation by giving people questions. And of course, reading the book, you'll know how I feel about questions. And it's kind of centered around that. But it's fascinating to me to watch somebody ask a question that they wouldn't normally ask, or they're not sure is the right question or what's going to happen, and how that spurs a dialogue. And what is also fascinating to me is that generally people answer the questions they're asked. And so when you ask a new question, people start talking about it. And if you keep up that dialogue, they start talking about things they haven't because most of the time they're just repeating the things that are top of mind and ready to go. Um, and that's why it's hard to really shift things because they're always kind of operating from that place. But you start to ask those questions. And as I say to my clients, with real curiosity. I mean, one of the one of the simplest questions, you know, what are you thinking? Uh, I said, look, there's ways that's a question and ways it's not. And they said, what do you mean? That's a question. I said, well, let me give an example. What are you thinking? This is not a question. This is a statement that says you're an idiot and you're not thinking. There's no curiosity there. And if I turn to group though and say, what are you thinking here? What do you think? and have that openness to it, then they're like, oh, you wanna hear what I think? And they start talking about that. And then you can get into a dialogue and uncover what do they really think, not what do they think you want them to say or think. And that begins to change it. So for me, that's, that's what I really focus on is the discipline around trying, introducing some questions, and then really learning from that. So with, with my groups, I have a group right now, they stood up a brand new function in, a, in a, you know, one of the world's largest retail behemoths. And they're really kind of a, a node function that connects to different parts of the organization and tries to solve problems in a setting and then reapply those solutions, if applicable, across and scale across the organization. And they have five questions that they're working with right now. And they try and find the right places where those questions work. They ask them. And then every month we get back together, about 10 of us, and we talk through what happened when you asked that question. Why didn't you ask the question when you planned on it? What was the outcome? What did you learn? What surprised you? And we really just work on improving their comfort and their skills at asking and then formulating questions. And that seems to be working, you know, well so far. I'd like to have a longitudinal study in it. I don't. But, you know, the anecdotal evidence so far is it is actually changing the conversation. And moreover, to your point and to her point, impacting the relationships, which is impacting their ability to get things done and put solutions forward. You bring to mind this, this current class, actually, of participants in our coaching skills who came back after 
for the second class. And one of them said, this has already changed my relationship with my sponsor. I want to dig into that whole topic of questions more. As a change practitioner, I was the subject matter expert. I was expected to have all the answers. Right. As a coach, I have no answers. Right. I have questions. I have curiosity, as, as you were talking about. And as you're probably aware, about a year and a half ago, I think, the International Coach Federation and Association of Change Management Professionals started working jointly to look at how do our professions uh, intersect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you see as the role of coaching in organizational transformation? Oh, um, <laughs> vital. Um, I, I can tell you that the individual coaching moves people farther along down some of the you know, organizational change things we're trying to do than anything else. I, I make it absolutely for me. It's a uh, part of my my book, you know, social and actual written contract with my clients that this is a component of it that we meet on a regular basis to talk, uh, and I find that coaching allows that quick, intimate, and immediate ability to engage in a learning dialogue. And once they start to engage in that learning dialogue, the pieces come together. I mean, and you you know, as well as if not, if not better than I probably that. All the answers we give people have very little impact on their brain, but the moment they go, oh, and they have that moment of breakthrough and those, you know, neural pathways get created, that something has happened and something has changed. And only with a setting in which you create a safe space for people to not know everything and you meet them at that table by not knowing everything and getting into a place of curiosity, that's the only place that true learning and growth happens. So I find that you can do that in groups, but it's much better to have the opportunity to also do it in individual coaching or even small team, but really individual coaching because it accelerates it. It accelerates the process. It brings you into the learning piece. It doesn't lead people to struggle on their own to apply. You know, I mean, I, at one point, as you know, I was a, a chief learning officer and a global head of uh, uh, organization and talent development at Bloomberg. And when we looked at, you know, when I look at training and I look at learning and I've spent plenty of time in that space, so much of it is here's all this great stuff and theory and it's all very true and useful and interesting. And we've given it to you. Now go out and apply it in the real world. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm learning to fly uh, airplanes, small planes. I've read the pilot's handbook. I've read all the stuff. I've taken the test. I know how to fly that plane. And then when I get up there and I'm coming in for a landing, my brain is not processing it fast enough and I'm half the time doing a go around. And there's a whole lot of difference between knowing what's in the book and applying it when you're under duress like you are every day in organizations. It's just not possible to do it on your own. So coaching, coaching makes that possible and creates that learning skill, I think. In writing about the shift from the industrial age to the age of the knowledge worker, Mm -hmm. Peter Drucker noted that in the former, the people serve the system. Well, in the latter, the system needs to serve the people. In the heart of transformation, you refer to process rather than system, but you seem to be echoing Drucker's perspective. Mm -hmm. Whether people are expected to serve the system or the system serves the people is one of the drivers we see actually behind the great resignation, the great reshuffling, Mm -hmm. whatever. People are no longer willing to be seen as interchangeable parts. What's required to ensure that this shift in the role of 
process takes place and is sustained over time. Well, for me, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna uh, rely on, on on my betters, and as I, uh, from our conversations uh, before, you know that I am a, a huge fan and, and devotee of uh, Edgar Schein, and when I look at his work, um, it shows up in this sixth kind of section of my book on humanizing over organizing, that humanizing, what he calls personizing and looking at levels of relationships. And it's, I think you already almost said it in the question there. It is that shift from seeing people as their role to seeing them, as Ed would say, as this fully kind of, you know, functioning adult human beings and take into consideration who they are. Uh, working with a company now is trying to establish it said, how do we establish some of our policies on this and that and the other thing? And I said, well, why do you need a policy? Since everything's fair and equitable. I said, why don't you just have conversations? Well, then somebody might get this and not get that. I said, okay. So somebody might get a whole lot of overtime and this person might not, but this person has kids and this one doesn't, they have different needs. You know, whatever the situation is, you meet your, your, your people, your peers, your colleagues, your employees, where they are, you understand them as whole human beings what they want to achieve in life, what they want to achieve in this job, what's their family situation like, enough to know what would appeal and what might appeal less. And you can start to, as a leader, organize and as a team, start to self-organize around that. And then you find yourself creating, you know, in the moment or on the fly or whenever you need to change organizational structures that serve the, the people and the purpose and the outcome not an organizational structure that most of us have to fight with to achieve the purpose and, and, and get the outcome. Because, you know, we design organizational structures and then we leave them there, you know, check the box, our work is done. And there's no HR team or management team that wants to go back and reassess that work every day that I got other things to do. So they make that, they make that decision and move on. Whereas if we say, let's not make that decision for anybody else, let's let those people decide and it can be within boundaries, certainly, but let those people decide because they know each other and know enough to make those decisions together. Then everyone's involved. People are happy with where they're at. They're engaged with it and they create an organization that is effective. That's my view, at least. You just mentioned one of what I believe is the heart of the heart of transformation, the book. Uh, one of the six characteristics of humans that are at the heart of transformation. And that's humanizing before organizing. I know this is an unfair question, but could you briefly identify and describe each of those six characteristics? Okay, and I say it's I... unfair because we could talk about any one of them for hours. So there's exploring before executing. And at the heart of that, it is, you know, in the rush to execute strategy, we sometimes forget to wake up in the morning and say, has anything changed? that may shift in, in small ways or in large ways what that strategy is that we're executing on. So we don't just continue to execute on a plan that no longer is going to get us where we want or is no longer valid because the world's changed around us. Um, there is innovating before replicating or, or scaling, which simply says that before we just continue to repeat things that have worked, we also need to engage in innovation to see if there's something that can work better, work differently. Uh, again, it's that it's, it's not a moment of, of one over the other or one now, not the other. It's just kind of one before the tried and true that we're used to, right? Because, it, 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 you know, scaling is not bad. Executing is not bad. But are we still executing on the right things? Are we still replicating what we need to replicate? There is uh, humanizing before organizing, we mentioned, which is simply 
going from a relationship basis and knowing each other and to organize to get work done that way, as opposed to just organizing and thinking that the human beings are fungible. There's pathfinding before path following. And that really just says that, you know, what you don't need to do as a, as a manager is to uh, build the yellow brick road and tell people to follow. You need to hire bricklayers who can figure it out as they go along. Because again, destinations are shifting, ways to get there are shifting. And the people that have to get there know some of the best ways to get there and your path might not fit them or might not fit everyone. Um, learning before knowing, and I was greatly inspired by um, uh, you know, conversations and, and, the, and the work of uh, Ed Hess here and Humility is the New Smart. I, I love that book. Uh, but learning before knowing simply says that you know, knowledge is, does not serve us like it used to. Um, it's our ability to learn and learn quickly and to relearn, to let go of, of knowledge and things we know that serves us because the the shelf life of what we know has become so much shorter than what it used to be. Uh, I think in, in the book, and I, I, I wanna have a conversation with Ed one day, just asking one question, say, he has a statistics that says, what we know to be true has a shelf life of an average of about three years, which just blows my mind. But it seems to be true because if you think back on all the things we knew were true, you know, they change. I mean, at one point you knew cars don't drive themselves. There's all sorts of things we knew that just aren't true. So we knew um, nobody and, could effectively work from home. But we, we knew that we knew that you couldn't be a team from home. That's right. Um, and then changing before protecting it is really about we have this tendency to, I mean, change is kind of an unnatural act. You know, human beings want enough stability and control so they can minimize threats in their life and survive. That's, you know, evolutionary biology. But being open to what changes could be good or valuable um, before you just protect what you've got, it, it can be incredibly useful. And, and, and really, I think it's the most useful when you apply that to considering changing myself before protecting who I am and what I have. Uh, now, I refer to my, my conversation with late, you know, Clay Christensen when we're having this discussion and he said, you know, Michael, I'm having an epiphany here. It used to be that we had to, you know, build the skills and get the experiences and, and, and everything to, to earn the job. Now we have the job and we have to build the skills and experiences to effectively do it in this kind of new fast paced digital world. And I think that's so true. And I think beyond that, what's true is that most leaders when confronted with that are terrified because they have, they have a framework in their head they've never acknowledged that says one of the reasons that I get to have more wealth than you and power and control over you and more status than you is because of what I know and where I've gotten. And I'm going to hang on to that. And if we now say, no, it's, it's, it's now where you can go and what you learn and what you can do, they kind of have two choices. One choice is to say, that's cool. That means I'm the best person to be here now, but now I've got to rise to the next level. That's awesome. The vast majority of them say, no way, because if I accept that my framework says, well, then you're not legitimate to be the leader. You're not legitimate to have all these things if you don't know more than everyone else. And so they don't think that through. It's subliminal and they just kind of roll with that and say, I've got to walk away from these things that say all of my stuff that matters to me is in jeopardy. Um, and since I think so subconscious, they don't, they don't deal with it, don't have a chance to really think through and be that person that says, cool, I'm here because I should be and I did the work. Now I've got to do more work. Many years ago, I trained with, and I, I still occasionally work with Daryl Connor, who's recognized as one of the founders of the change management profession. One of the things that I always 
found profoundly wise about Daryl's work was he was about teaching his clients everything he knew, not holding it in. And, you know, I'm here to work my magic, yeah. but I want you to know everything I know so that I can continue to learn and grow and understand this even more. Yeah. You know, I hear what you're saying in that frame and it's just so wise. You state that a new reality of organizations is that managing change and transformation is leadership's job, working with everyone, not the job of human resources or a consultant working with some specialist function or team. Yeah. What are the implications of this for both leaders and for us as change management professionals? Oh, that's another great question. Um, well, I think for leaders, you know, they have gotten comfortable in their, their, again, their place of knowing, their place of expertise. And, and now we're saying that really all that you knew about finance is secondary. All of that that you know about supply chain is important. You have to have that context, but you can't do it all. So you have to have that context to know what business or function you're running. But really as a leader, you're getting other people to do the work. I, I have a, I've had a conversation yesterday with a client, um, you know, a, a C-suite executive in an enormous corporation. And his frustration is that his leadership team is not letting go to the leaders. Um, I think because they think they don't quite have the right leaders below them or they haven't learned enough yet. But he says, look, you, you need to, you know, like I do with you, get clear on where we're going. And then they're going to need to figure out how they're going to get there and how they're going to measure their progress and bring that back to you. And it's not you going in and diving in and solving their problems and keeping them helpless. Um, and so the implication for leaders is that you're going to need to embrace a new skill set and a new practice or way of working as your number one thing. Um, that's, again, as we talked about earlier, that's destabilizing to a lot of leaders who don't feel they have time to learn anything because they've got to be busy knowing everything to get stuff done. And they've been rewarded for that handsomely. You know, we built the system that encourages that. Um, and it's not served them well or it's not serving them well now. I think the implication for practitioners, and, and uh, you mentioned something earlier um, you know, about going in with expertise, and all we have to look, look back at is... Um, you know, Shine's models of process consultation saying, look, you've got your expert doctor patient, your, you know, process consultant that creates that interpersonal process. What's, what's difficult, I think, for a lot of people many times in the organization development field, and I'm going to make a gross generalization here, it's probably wrong, but I'll do it anyway. And, you know, send the, send the love letters later, um, is that we, as a part of human resources, it's a function that's always still in many ways been desperate for more validity. <laughs> and so, you know, human resources really didn't come about until eventually there were so many laws and things that somebody had to do that personnel thing. And then human resources grew more powerful as there were control over things or knowledge about things that could devastate a company if done wrong. But our legitimacy has come a lot from what we know or from us being the ones that are involved in making the decisions or implementing decisions that are interpersonally really difficult for other managers. Um, but what we have to do is we have to become those process consultants and we have to let go of our legitimacy comes just like everybody else from what we know. And it turns into our legitimacy comes from the atmosphere and the environment we create for individuals and groups to learn and know themselves. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things that again, it's hard to give up. It's hard. It, it's hard not to stand up there and be the smartest guy in the room 
if you can, or if you can pull it off and make it look good because everybody loves that. And it feels really good being the guy with all the questions. Um, you know, it, it's, it's challenging sometimes to feel that you're still making an impact because you're not sharing that brilliance. You're asking questions and hoping people learn and grow. Of course, if you step back and, and look at it over time, when I ask any of my clients of all of the things that I've done and I brought in expertise and all this stuff, what's the one thing that makes the biggest difference? Well, you create a space for me to actually think. Interesting thing is going to market with what do I do for you? I create a space for you to think. There's not a lot of clients that want to buy it, but the ones that do, and there's, there's actually quite a few that do struggle with, but how can I justify it to somebody else and not have it make me look weak? I mean, and that's, that's our culture, right? Asking for help makes you weak. You think about, you know, you ever been in a room and somebody falls down or someone's, you know, hurt or in a hospital and they say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm hurt. Wait, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I need help. Why should you be sorry? You need help. You obviously need help. And, and I can render it because of something that happened to you. But we apologize for needing help and we feel shameful about it. And so it keeps us from getting the help we need, in my humble opinion. Thank you. Change management is a relatively new profession. I often tell people everything I learned from Daryl in 1988 is still true. And it was the surface of however many layers of the onion in we are. Now, you write, the learning worker has one very crucial individual they have to be sure they learn about, a being who is slippery, who tells them subtle lies, who resists being questioned themselves. As we look at change management practitioners through this lens, why is this perspective that you're offering so important? Yeah, you know, I mean, I've had some really... Um just lucky things happened in my life. And one of them was stumbling into um, the Pepperdine MSOD program that I went to. And I stumbled into it because, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Miriam Lacey, I had for a, an org behavior class, my first semester of my MBA program. So I wanted to do some consulting thing and let's you know, talk about how I got there in the book. And she said, well, why aren't you in the MSOD? And I said, well, what's an MSOD? Um, but getting in there when I got into the program and uh, you know, spent more time working, my thesis advisor, Chris Worley, who's still a, a good friend and colleague, um, said that, look, the program is built on three things. It's built on deep theoretical knowledge. You got to read all the books and know all the stuff. It's built on practical application. It's built on the self as instrument. And the idea is if you don't have self-awareness, the places that you lack self-awareness, the places that you make your own mistakes over and over again, You'll be blind to those in your client if they're blind to those in you and you can exacerbate problems for them. And so, you know, I think that we're always, we're always, you know, I was going to say we're always thinking about our own agenda and that's absolutely wrong. We're never thinking about our own agenda, but it's always omnipresent as we're doing what we do. And if our hidden agenda involves, you know, reassuring ourselves or making ourselves look good or doing the things that make us comfortable, then we're just going to do things that make us look good and make us comfortable. It's not necessarily going to be impactful and effective. And I think, you know, we all know that it's when you have the conversations that are a little more awkward uh, as uh, you know, Mary Beth O'Neill in her awesome book, you know, executive coaching with backbone and heart says you have to have the backbone to say what is true and what you believe without fear of the conflict. And you have to have the heart to stay engaged and even to reach out if it causes conflict, at least kind of how I remember it. 
And I think that's that's so true. Um, and in that ability to say, this conversation may be a little challenging, may be a little awkward, may be pushing, it may be something we're not used to interpersonally. We're going to be okay, though. And then having that conversation, it gives people a, a differentiated experience and it gives them a place to start to be vulnerable and discover the power of that and emerge still okay. And they can start to realize I can be more open, more vulnerable, and I don't explode. Uh, you know, you think of Brene Brown, you know, has done great stuff on this, talks about it all the time, but that idea that when you are in front of a group saying something and being vulnerable, it feels every time to you like weakness and it looks every time to them like strength is something I always keep in mind when I go ahead and say, I've got to put myself out there or else others aren't going to feel safe to, especially if I'm the leader. Michael, again, I, I could talk with you for hours. And if you're ever in the New York area, let's do it. Absolutely. In closing, anything else that you want to share that you think is important for our listeners to hear? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I guess, I guess the only thing I would say is that the, the one thing that I have struggled with off and on during my career is ensuring that I kept those people around me that told me the truth, that approached me with backbone and heart. It's very easy. It's very seductive to get into kind of that, you know, guru space, especially in this area. You know, I have, I have two friends, I won't name them, but very, very close friends I worked with. And we were talking one day and, and one of them was saying, well, I think I should approach in their business this way. And, and, um, and he's incredibly, incredibly successful in this space. And other friend said, well, I think that would work for you. I mean, you want to be a guru. And he goes, no, I don't. He goes, sure you do. You like this, this, and this, and you need this. And it's got to be, you know, really insightful and this and that. So you kind of want to be a guru. And he looks at him and, you know, he goes, just one big fat expletive came out. <laughs> He's like, damn it, <laughs> damn it. You're right. I am approaching this from my, who I am perspective. I, I started to drink the Kool-Aid that everyone's been feeding me about how great I am and forgetting that I'm just another guy. Um, and I have some intelligence and I have some luck. So I guess the one thing I would say in closing is, man, continue to cultivate those people around you who, you know, tell you the truth and, uh, you know, uh, speak the truth and love to you, even when the truth hurts. Um, you know, I have several of them now in my life, finally to that point, some that are regularly scheduled calls, some that are just those kind of people. And it keeps me growing and it keeps me healthy and it, and it keeps me humble, which allows me to actually do and be more and have a bigger impact is, is you know, kind of odd as that may seem. Michael, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely, Ryan. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Change Management Review Podcast. Be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.